Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Ana Baptista, Associate Professor in the Milano School of Policy, Management, and Environment at the New School in New York City, where she is also co-director of the Tishman Environment and Design Center. Ana's research focuses on climate and environmental justice. She works on a range of issues, and most of her work involves deep community engagement. Prior to joining the new school, Anna served as the Environmental Justice and Planning Director for the Ironbound Community Corporation in Newark, New Jersey, where she now serves on the Board of Trustees. Anna is here today to talk about cumulative impacts and environmental justice. We'll ask Anna to tell us about some of her findings in an August 2022 report she wrote on cumulative impacts, the new groundbreaking law in New Jersey that addresses cumulative impacts, and other policy developments. Stay with us. Hello, Anna. It's great to talk with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hello, Margaret. Thanks for inviting me. So, Anna, before we dive into the topic today of cumulative impacts and environmental justice, can I ask you to share just a little bit about yourself? I mentioned your current academic position and your prior work with Ironbound, but can you just tell us sort of how you came to work on environmental justice issues and kind of pursue this combination of scholarship and community engagement that seems to be central to your work? Yes, I mean, I'm I'm a bit of an accidental academic, I tell people, because um, it wasn't uh, originally in my plans um, to end up at a, an academic institution. But, you know, I grew up in a community called the Ironbound um, in the East Ward of uh, the great city of Newark, New Jersey, and growing up in, in a place like Ironbound, um, you really get a, a true sense of environmental injustice. You know, I grew up very close to industrial sites and um, the seaports and um, what became the state's largest garbage incinerator and um, some of my earliest exposure to issues um, that at the time I didn't know they were called environmental justice or environmental racism. I really just understood it as, you know, people dumping in our communities. And residents in the community were very um, organized, uh, very proud of their community, you know, and as a kid, you know, we I participated along with my family in many of the protests and community meetings and efforts to try to protect our community. Um, and improve our quality of life. And so, you know, growing up in that kind of environment, you know, made me really acutely aware of the differences of different communities and neighborhoods um, and the lack of protections for communities like mine. And, you know, I ended up going off to study um, environmental science and then eventually urban planning. Um, And it brought me full circle back home to do a doctorate at Rutgers on environmental justice. um, And, got sucked right back into local organizing work with the Ironbound Community Corporation um, and, and really, yeah, found myself a full circle on my journey uh, back home and was really privileged to be able to take all the things I learned in school and use them and apply them in my own community. Yeah, that's fascinating. The personal experiences really, really matter. So that's great. Let's start with the basic question for people to learn about what we mean uh, by cumulative impacts and why we're concerned about them, especially concerned about them 
in environmental justice or disadvantaged communities. Um, I know in your study, you say that cumulative impacts have been a focus in, in EJ community for decades, even though sort of, I think in the policy world, they're really only recently rising to the forefront. So can you just give us some education here on what exactly we mean by cumulative impacts? Yes, I mean, it sounds like a, a fancy word, but for all um, for all intent and purposes, it's really the idea that when you're in a community that has um, many sources of pollution, you're exposed to a variety of chemicals from a variety of sources. Um, and oftentimes, the um, underlying socioeconomic and um, health conditions and other social and economic conditions that shape your experience uh, and your exposure um, all contribute to a combined effect of stressors. And um, simply put, it's you know multiple pollutants emitted by multiple sources in a community and often their interaction with each other and social vulnerabilities. And the U Environmental Protection Agency has a much more uh, scientific, <laughs> precise definition um, that talks about, you know, the combined exposure to a broad range of stressors. Um, and that can be um, pollutants, chemicals, combinations of both what you inhale, what you drink, what you eat. Um, and that all of those things increase your vulnerability to environmental hazards. Um, and could result in significant environmental and public health harms and risks um, to people. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a quick follow-up question? Do you generally also consider things like, let's say, exposure to flood risks and sort of urban heat island and kind of climate impacts as part of that mix? Certainly, definitely. Climate risks are definitely part of sort of the combination of factors that could really impact uh, an individual and a, and a community's well-being. So anything um, that increases um, the vulnerability and the exposure of residents to to hazards um, is certainly part of what we think of when we think of cumulative impacts. Okay, great. Um, so do cumulative impacts typically fall through the regulatory cracks? And if they do, can you explain how and why that happens? Yes, I mean, this is one of the, the biggest challenges in the environmental justice movement as people in communities that are facing multiple sources of pollution um, often um, go to their state or federal or local um, agencies and they say, please, we, we have too many um, exposures, we have too many pollutants, and oftentimes environmental regulations are not um, set up to define cumulative impacts and the interaction of pollutants from multiple sources. They really regulate pollutants by media and by pollutant type uh, according to federal and state statutes. Um, so it's very frustrating for residents when they are experiencing this sort of very complex combination of factors that put them at risk, but the environmental laws that we have um, really don't have a way to characterize those risks or to include them in the decision-making processes of things like permitting new pollution sources um, or, you know, enforcing or regulating them. And so this has definitely been an issue that has 
fallen through the regulatory cracks, or it's it's certainly an issue that more and more agencies are aware of and have studied, but have not yet created the legal and regulatory tools to address them really affirmatively. Um, and we see that there's um, the US EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, just put out a report in May, an addendum and a, and a report um, that looks at the federal agency's legal authority to address cumulative impacts under current um, laws and statutes. So um, the EPA really tried to make this effort to distinguish in this report where they have discretion um, and where they have an opportunity to consider cumulative impacts in the context of various types of decision-making settings. Uh, but again, the document makes clear that these legal reviews are not meant to provide specific action um, on specific decisions, um, and that is still left to EPA offices and programs and states to make those determinations. Yeah, right. So you are bringing up the role that states play, and that's important, and especially when it comes to permitting, which is something I think is sort of a boring topic maybe in the <laughs> environmental community, or it's just not, I don't know, I don't feel that it gets enough attention, especially in environmental justice policy conversations. I don't know if you agree with that. Obviously, it's something that you're looking at a lot, but can you talk a little bit more about just sort of tell people how permitting works and the important role of state agencies in this process? Yeah, I mean, permitting, I know it sounds boring, and <laughs> certainly reading permits can be a real snoozer, but I have to really emphasize how important permitting is. And for many environmental justice communities and organizations, permitting is the sort of bread and butter of the a lot of the conflicts and fights that they often have to engage in to protect their communities. So in fact, Egypt communities have been grappling with permitting decisions for decades and oftentimes hitting a brick wall because there is no pathway forward in terms of ensuring that permitting considers cumulative impacts. Um, and so what permitting in the environmental context has done is continue to maintain and entrench patterns of environmental racism because um, it doesn't affirmatively address the patterns of the concentration of polluting industries in communities of color and low-income communities. These patterns have been studied by many, many different scholars and EJ activists over decades. Uh, we see a clear co-location of industries uh, and communities of color, indigenous communities, and low-wealth communities. And um, permitting <laughs> is one of the ways that those patterns continue to be uh, entrenched because it doesn't take into consideration um, those historical patterns of land use that segregated communities and um, you know created these concentrated pockets of industries. So, you know, Environmental laws generally are the purview of uh, the federal government and state governments, and most environmental laws were passed uh, at the federal level, like the Clean Air Act, and then many of them are delegated to the states to carry out. So most states are the ones actually issuing permits 
under their own um, you know, legislation, uh, their own version of the Clean Air Act, um, delegated to them under, under the federal, federal laws. So um, even though EPA sort of sets the floor, in other words, the Federal Clean Air Act is the floor that states must implement, many states have the discretion to go beyond the EPAs and the federal um, laws and um, they have a lot of discretion in terms of the level of enforcement and scrutiny that they apply to um, their authority to permit industries. So some states go far beyond uh, what the federal laws are, but many you know, barely implement the minimum federal requirements. And so we have quite a difference among states in terms of how uh, they apply permitting. Yeah. And that's something you you get into a little bit in this report that I mentioned at the beginning in the introduction, which provides an overview of what's happening in the states and a really detailed online tool accompanies that report with links to many peer-reviewed studies and pieces of legislation and so forth. It's a really good resource. Um, but you, can you say a little bit more about what you found about the differences across the states and if states are actually looking into addressing cumulative impacts? Yes, you know, the the effort to pull together this tool or this resource that the report highlights came out of requests from EJ advocates in different states really pushing cumulative impacts approaches um, in their own states and really having a hard time coming up with sort of uh, a methodology or uh, model legislation um, because there really isn't um, a, a clear sort of standard set of guidance uh, across um, the U.S. So what we did is we really looked at, you know, where are states um, implementing or trying to implement so uh, cumulative impacts approaches either through legislation um, or through agency policy or through guidance documents. And so we really took a broad look at, you know, how um, states are defining cumulative impacts, what kinds of methodologies or mapping tools they're creating, you know, how they're fleshing out the particular issues in their own states and communities. And, you know, what we found is that in the last five years alone, there's been a huge uptick in legislative activity at the state level with respect to cumulative impacts. There have been several laws proposed um, and some actually pass in places like New York, New Jersey, you know, California. Uh, there are many states who are passing cumulative impacts laws, many that are proposing them, even though they're not getting passed or enacted. And so there's obviously a big push from the environmental justice movement um, to advance cumulative impacts more forcefully. And the report also shows that prior to the last few years, much of the cumulative impacts work was happening in the form of studies or mapping um, or guidance documents. So there was a lot of studying, I would say, (laughs) of the problem. And, um, And then we jump to today where we see states taking a much more proactive approach to enact actual cumulative impacts mechanisms, you know, decision-making mechanisms. So um, to me, this signals that, you know, the time is ripe for um, 
you know, communities don't want to wait for the perfect modeling and all the science and years and decades of studying the problem. They really want to have a bias to action and push into more definitive regulatory and protective approaches for communities. Right. Um, so New Jersey, I want to ask you to talk about your home state of New Jersey, <laughs> seems to be at the forefront. Um, so the state passed a cumulative impacts law. I think that was in the latter part of 2020. Um, so can you describe what the law does? And the, I know there were long years of work to get this into legislation, which I think you had played some role in. And then tell us where do things stand right now with sort of implementing the law? Yes, I mean, this law that passed in 2020 was, you know, almost a decade in the making or more. Um, the, uh, EJ advocates in the state, environmental justice groups like Ironbound Community Corporation and the New Jersey Environmental Justice Alliance, which I am a very active member of, um, we had been pushing for an approach to cumulative impacts within our our state regulatory agencies for a long time. Um, and sometimes the political opportunity was just not there or interest, the political will was not there to pass a more aggressive law. But we continued our effort to um, develop approaches to how one might approach cumulative impacts. And along the way, many people told us, this is impossible. We don't know how to do cumulative impacts policy. Um, it's never been done. And <laughs> so not to be discouraged, uh, we pushed on and we found a really wonderful champion and Senator Troy Singleton, who's a, a New Jersey legislator who championed this bill and entrusted EJ advocates with being thought partners and thought leaders along with himself and um, the New Jersey DEP staff that we worked very closely with to develop uh, a very specific law, the law sets out which communities are environmental justice communities or the law actually defines them as overburdened communities. Um, and they do this by looking at the percentage of people of color, uh, low-income people, and linguistically isolated people across every census block of the state and sets a threshold that's around the state average. So community census, you know, census blocks above that state average are considered um, overburden or EJ communities. Then the law has a set of facilities and a set of permits, you know, mostly major permits like air quality permits, uh, anything related to waste or hazardous waste. Um, so eight different types of facilities, several different types of major permits that would trigger this law. So if you're an applicant for seeking a permit, a major permit, like a Title V air permit, um, in an overburdened community census block group, you will be subject to the law and you will have to be uh, preparing an environmental justice impact statement. Um, it's a bit complicated and technical how they prepare, but the, the state has basically developed a set of 23 stressors um, and looked at um, the levels of those stressors in overburdened community versus non-overburdened communities and set a 50% threshold so that if an industry is located in a community where those stressors are above the average, the state average in non-overburdened communities, it's considered to be causing or contributing to adverse environmental health and public health stressors and the state must deny the permit. So it requires the state to say no 
to industries that will contribute any absolute amount of pollution in a community that's already experiencing uh, above average stressors. Um, and it also applies to renewals of permits. Um, so it allows the state to condition and put in mitigating factors to condition existing permits at the time of renewal. So this is the first and only, <laughs> until New York just passed theirs, uh, law that requires the state to say no on the basis of cumulative impacts considerations. And now where the public comment period was put out, we submitted comments on the on the rules. You know, often people think, oh, the law is passed, we're done. But actually, it took us two years to go through the rulemaking process, which is means the technical process of how the state will actually implement the law. And those rules are very, very important because it details exactly how cumulative impacts will be determined. And it defines all the parameters that the state will use to do those reviews. Um, so it took two years, and we're expecting the final rule to be issued in February. So we're very much looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, wow. That's very right around the corner. And um, so is, were the draft rules released for public comment? Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. They were released last year. Um, there was about a three-month public comment period. And um, now they're sitting at the governor's office ready to be put into the, uh, the register for implementation. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, um, just want to add another question about this process. How much pushback did you get from industry through all of this? Or <laughs> was that a big part of the battles? Or Oh, yeah. How, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, any, if, if you're not getting pushback or opposition to your rule, it's probably a bad sign that your <laughs> rule is not really um, very strong. <laughs> So um, I took it as a good sign that we had significant industry opposition um, to the rule. Um, they made many claims about, you know, this is going to kill business in, you know, distressed communities. It's going to push industries completely out of the state. Um, it's too restrictive. Um, so there, there were a lot of uh industry uh, concerns and opposition, many of which I think are largely exaggerated, but also uh, many of them um, really uh, reflect the attitude that we need these EJ communities as dumping sites, as sinks, um, and without the ability to continue to place and concentrate pollution and in industries in these communities, um, they 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 feel threatened um, instead of thinking about you know how can we mitigate what we're doing or think about other places to distribute these industries um, so it's it was really telling but very expected you know we did anticipate opposition to the rule we also had some opposition from uh, labor unions that uh, were being pushed by industries to make claims that this would kill union construction jobs, which, you know, for the most part, many of the facilities that are covered by the, the law really have very little job potential <laughs> for, especially for local economies and local communities, other than maybe construction permits. So it, you know, it doesn't apply universally to every kind of, you know, facility type. It's really narrowly focused on 
those industries that are most impactful and, and polluting. So, yeah, we, we anticipate it and we got it. And we think we will continue to get industry opposition as the state issues uh, nose on permits. We anticipate that that opposition will continue. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, in light of all these things going on, what do you think um, is the research that needs to be done around this topic? Um, so I know I, I've read or heard people say that, you know, risk assessments, health risk assessments, which underpin EPA regulatory impact analyses and sort of guide policy are focused on a single pollutant. You brought that up or a single stressor. Do we need more research on the effects of multiple stressors? I know your comment earlier suggests we need to be moving on from that. We know there are these impacts, but I'm just curious about what you think are the needs in the research area? Is is there a need to maybe study the outcomes from the New Jersey um, policy? Or what are some things that come to mind for you? What are gaps that need to be filled, do you think? Yeah, there's there's still, you know, obviously a lot of work to do, uh, as you mentioned, for example, evaluating the the benefits of cumulative impacts interventions, you know, what, what, what is the value of different types of approaches? You know, when we say no to permits, do they move to other places and have similar impacts? Do we see conditions actually mitigating impacts in communities? There's a lot that we still don't know about how to integrate more qualitative, um, local forms of information about stressors into cumulative impacts assessments and tools. So we have some pretty good data on things like air quality and density of permits or facilities, but uh, there are lots of gaps in our knowledge about local conditions that could make a big difference to um, stressors in in communities and that are, may be really important to the health and well-being of local areas. Um, we also, you know, don't necessarily have a lot of experience with integrating lots of different types of data into cumulative impacts analyses like participatory science, traditional ecological knowledge, like what are other types of knowledge and and data uh, forms that could be incorporated. And then I know there's lots of really great science happening to get a better sense of community level and personal exposure to lots of non-chemical stressors along with chemical stressors. We, we know that communities that are most susceptible to pollution and most vulnerable are facing things like chronic stress or, you know, uncertain housing conditions, lack of access to public health care, um, and increasingly climate change related risks. And so, you know, how do these things combine to maybe heighten the impact or risks from things like air pollution. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot still that we can explore and, and better refine because the reality is our cumulative impacts tools are probably just scratching the surface of what the real impact is in communities. It's probably wildly underestimating actually how burdened communities are. But, um, but we also can't wait <laughs> for the perfect. Um, to, so, so I think all of these things are important to be happening in parallel to taking some action. Right, right. Good point. So I, I see we're nearing the 
close of our time. And I, we always like to end our podcast with a regular feature that we call Top of the Stack, where we ask our guests to recommend to our listeners more good content, whether it's a book, an article, a podcast, anything that um, you might recommend to our listeners. So Anna, what's on the top of your stack? Well, um, I think for those of you who are interested into digging into the the wild world of accumulative impacts, <laughs> I would definitely recommend um, starting with articles um, by Rachel Morello Frosch um, and her team out in California. Much of what I know and many of my colleagues have learned about cumulative impacts comes out of the great work um, that researchers like uh, Rachel did in California over a decade ago, um, looking at how to um, study and address cumulative impacts analyses. And if that's a little too academic, <laughs> I would definitely um, recommend the oldies but goodies, you know, reading Darcita Taylor's Toxic Communities from 2014. Her book is an excellent sort of um, reference point for anybody interested in understanding the, the complex interaction of cumulative impacts and sort of the history of land use um, and industrial development and Bob Bullard's The Quest for Environmental Justice uh, from 2005. Um, those books are sort of foundational texts and really get at sort of how, how do we get here? <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And I am familiar with those two books and they are great. So thank you so much for those recommendations. So Ana Baptista, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for giving us an introduction to cumulative impacts. We're going to all be following this and how it plays out in policy going forward. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.